We are live. Welcome to episode 3301 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday, May the 15th, 2023. And this is a interesting week for me. I'm out of here on Thursday, so I will have a rewind for you Thursday. I've actually already produced that. I am ahead of the game this week, and I need to be because I need to make sure everything out on the farm is as perfect as it can be. So my wife starts at a zero from maintenance required while she has to take care of the place for a few days on her own. And especially since my, uh, one of my best friends in the world, that is the guy I can rely on to come by and, and help out. We'll be in the Austin area too. Uh, so he won't be here for that. So I got to put my wife at like perfectly set up for success while I'm gone. Try to leave her as little to take care of as possible while I'm not here. Anyway, uh, my thought was let's do something fun and enjoyable and uh, a little bit different uh, to start off the week this week. Instead of doing a current event show where we talk about how crazy the world is, like stop the planet, I want to get off like I did last week. Let's talk about something fun, cooking. But let's make sure we're also talking about a prepper topic. So when we jump into this, I'll explain to you why this is absolutely a prepper topic, and I'll talk about how having the life skill of cooking, when I was 21 years old, almost 22, when I came here to Texas after I got out of the Army, was so valuable for me. It was a preparedness thing, even when I didn't call it that, because I lived really well. When a lot of people around me that were kind of my contemporaries, you know, they were living off the uh, the value menu at Taco Bell. I was eating a lot better and spending a lot less on my food. And hence I had a lot more money for what 21, 20 year, two year old guys like to do, at least back in the nineties, which was run around and chase girls in bars. Uh, that was a lot more fun than uh, giving all my money to restaurants. So we'll talk about all of that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. It's the last time you'll hear this on for a sponsor segment because you're running out of time. Exit and build land summit three. That's why you get one rewind this week. Uh, yeah, Thursday, you get a rewind. Friday, expert panel show. I have enough content to pre-produce one, so that's what I'm doing for that. But I will be down at Exit and Build. I'll be speaking on Saturday about biochar. Need to reach out to John today. I think I'm going to try to provide a little bonus content during the lunch uh, session uh, after my talk. So it, I'll see if John's okay with that or if we can make it happen. Or I'll do Q&A with people, maybe kind of a lunch and learn environment like Give about half the time for lunch, and then if you're not done, you bring your lunch back into one of the other rooms. I don't know if we'll be able to do it, but I'm going to ask. Always try to bring more value uh, to things like this for you guys and for people like John. But, guys, you're out of time. Final week. You can still come to Exit and Build Land Summit 3. And if you can't come, get over to the site. Make sure you use the link in the video notes below or on the audio notes if you're listening by audio today. And use my link so I get credit for the fact you did it. All you got to do is fill out that form that's on the screen right there, your name and your email. And if nothing else, you can watch quite a bit of the, the whole thing for free at home. Uh, then you'll see the options to attend and like the additional virtual immersion experience as well. So do consider coming out and uh, joining us. It's going to be really great. I don't know if any of the VIP tickets are still available, but if they are, you might want to consider getting one because the meal alone is worth coming for. I mean, really, the meal alone for the VIP dinner is going to be insane. Also, some other cool stuff going on Friday night. 
Um, but I'd love to see you guys there. Next up, bulkammo.com. Uh, I think you should go to bulkammo.com, and I think you should buy your ammo in bulk, and I think you should get it while the availability is high because we've seen it cycle over and over. Been doing the show almost 15 years now. I've seen at least five big ammo shortage cycles in 15 years. So about once every three years, the gun grabbers start talking shit. The first thing that disappears isn't guns. Because a lot of us, we have lots of guns already. It's ammo and magazines. Well, bulkammo.com really can't help you out with magazines, but they can help you out with ammo in all the common calibers and some of the not-so-common calibers. Super value priced incredibly fast shipping. Check them out today. Longtime sponsor of the show. I think 12 years Bulk Ammo has been a sponsor of the show. Check them out today. You know where, BulkAmmo.com. Remember, they do have a discount program for members of the MSB. With that, let's uh, let's start talking about uh, our main topic on today's show, and I think you guys will really uh, like that. Also, uh, all caps, all caps, for uh, questions and talking points today, it's very important when I'm alone, if you want me to see your comments, that you put them up. Even if I'm putting them up on the screen like I'm doing right now, it doesn't mean I, I can read and keep up when I'm alone. When I have a guest, it's really easy because while the guest is talking, I can get caught up on the comments and make sure I see your questions. So questions, talking points, all caps. On that, AJ says, is there a meetup night? Uh, I was able to get a VIP pass. So AJ and anybody else has got a VIP pass. I was planning on doing a meetup. I didn't know that there were two evening events, though, Friday and Saturday. So if you have the VIP pass, AJ, there is a really cool place called Community Gardens. It's where uh, Zuby did his concert and JP Sears did his uh, comedy routine, which was really inspiring as well at the last event and there's some stuff going on there. So I'll definitely be there to hang out with people who come to that. And then Saturday night, the VIP dinner, I will be there. And I always make myself available. Uh, again, before we dig into this, let's just, so you guys, if you ever come to an event where I am at, I've been on the other side of it where you want to talk to somebody and that somebody has a lot of people talking to them and you don't want to be a burden on them. And I always try to be brief when I talk to people like that. I'm not that popular. Okay. And I'm there for the duration. And I am, when I'm at events, I stay, I will not be there all day Sunday at this one. I'll be probably live. I'll probably show up early Sunday, say hi to everybody. Thank John, et cetera. Say goodbye and get home to my wife. So I'm not staying all day Sunday. I am there all day Friday, all day Saturday. When I am not speaking or helping John in some way, I am either in the, the, the green room, the VIP area, where you, if you're a VIP, you can just come in there and talk to me, or I spend a lot of time up front where the table vendors are. I try to make myself available. I talk to anybody as much as I can within reason. Uh, there's a pretty cool um, uh, farmer's market, usually on Saturdays, just a short walk from the center. I may set up a time that I go over there and let people know it. But my point is, I don't care if it's this or any other event that I am ever at. If you want to speak to me, come freaking talk to me. Do not think you're bothering me. Don't think I don't want to hear what you have to say. I am there for you or I wouldn't go. I don't get enough broad exposure of new people that these events generally have a great ROI for me on like growing the audience or something like that. That is not why I don't do them for new, you know, I get new people. Great. 
but I do them because people get to actually meet me and talk to me. And it's really important to me. And I've said enough about it, but just you have an open invitation. You're not bothering me. Come chat. All right. So again, anything you have during this episode, that's a question. Please use all caps. I will do the best that I can for you. With that, let's start off with, I just, I'll, whenever I talk about stuff like this, I always kind of have to placate the people like, is this really a prepper topic? You know, but if I was sitting here talking about uh, doing exercises and training drills to get really fast at reloading mags on the move, then they would, ne- those same people would never bring anything up. Well, I always say this, but I, I pretty much eat every day. Occasionally I do a, a fast that lasts through a, a whole day. That's about it for me. I don't do these five day fasts or anything. Most of the time, I'm eating like twice a day, sometimes three times a day. And you probably are too. And the first thing that people start thinking about when they start prepping is food, water, shelter, energy, security. But usually if you ask people to do it, and sanitation, right? If you ask people to give you the things to think about when it comes to prepping, food is almost always the first word out of their mouth. And there's a reason. And it's back to the old cliche that men would always say, especially back in the day, I have to put food on the table. Why do you go to work, daddy? Got to put food on the table, keep a roof over your head. Those priorities feed you because water is kind of considered part of that. Feed you and keep your house. Food and shelter. If I can do that, water's easy. Everything else we'll, we'll figure out. So it's, it's definitely a huge topic from just a generalized preparedness thing. If you're going to store food, you better know how to cook it, et cetera. But I want to take you back to I was 21 years old when I came to Texas back in 1993. And I got here and I was a roommate with an army buddy for a little while. And I eventually got my own place and all. But my first job that I had when I moved here is as rapidly as I kind of moved up. No one starts out not being broke. And that's something I think a lot of millennials and millennials less now. Now it's Gen Z. Like when I started this show, all the millennials were kids and now the millennials, a lot of you guys are on freaking high blood pressure medication, right? You're almost as old as us Gen Xers, right? People are going to start confusing you for boomers, too, if you keep it up. But Gen Z needs to realize, and millennials can tell you this now because they've been through it, you're not unique when you're 20, 21, 22, 23 in being broke and feeling that you're never going to get ahead. That's not unique. Your, your parents were that way. Your grandparents that way. Your great-grandparents that way. We can make all of these claims about, you know, it's easier. It was easier to feed a family on one income, you know, 50 years ago than this today. And it's true. But you were still working for Jack Diddley crap when you started. That's just how it's always been. And it always will be. You have to earn, again, earn credibility and a track record to advance in the world. And so you're going to start out broke. And I did. The first job I took. When I got here, I did some part-time work for Firestone busting tires down and all. I made barely over minimum wage for that. Minimum wage at the time, by the way, was three thirty-five an hour. Just saying. And uh, I uh, I did some other things like part-time and some sales and stuff. But my first full-time job, I worked in a warehouse packing boxes. I made seven bucks an hour, and I lived really well at that. And then the next thing that I did. Um, after that was I got into telecommunications and it paid a lot better, but not great, not great, especially the first job I had. I traveled 
And uh, a lot of the money that I was paid that looked like it was pretty decent went to per diem so that I could afford to, you know, have a hotel room when I was on the road. I did all kinds of things to cut expenses while I was doing that. And uh, I like I would sleep in my truck, uh, you know, one night while I was on the road a week to cut one night off the hotel bill. A lot of times what I would do is the last day instead of, you know, if I would get done working instead of spending we working night shift or something, getting off really early in the morning, instead of having the hotel for another day and sleeping, I would risk my ass and drive home, sleep at a way, uh, like a rest stop or something on the way home. So, I mean, I was cutting cost anywhere I could. And even when I got off the road and I got a decent paying job, you know, without having to travel anymore, it was still, I wasn't dead broke, but I didn't have a lot of money. And what I did back then was I, I used the knowledge that I had acquired as a kid growing up in cooking with my grandmothers, et cetera, and in cooking a lot of things that my family simply didn't want. When we moved back to Pennsylvania, you know, my grandmother up there, she cooked anything and everything. You could have went out and picked it up off the road, and my old Ukrainian grandmother, if it would have looked like it could be turned into something, would have cooked it. My parents and my grandmother, when I lived in Florida, like when you brought home catfish or something, they weren't going to touch it. You had to learn yourself. So I had to teach myself to cook. I camped a lot when I was a kid, spent a lot of time away. I moved out on my own when I was not quite 16 years old. And I've been on my own since right at 16 forward. And so I learned how to cook. So when I ended up out of the army where you get three squares a day, right, and you always get paid every week. And you have your housing and everything, so it doesn't even matter that you're making shit wages because you have no real expenses as a single guy in the military. And boom, you're back on the streets, and you're knocking down $250 a week. And that's not a lot of money to have to pay rent, an electric bill. I didn't even have a phone. My my job, this is so long ago, and I'm so old, they gave me a pager. And my apartment complex had a, a pay phone. Like I could walk downstairs around the building and there it was. So I just used the phone at, at work where I worked during the day and I used the pay phone for a quarter. Yeah. You had to put a quarter in a pay phone to make a phone call. This is pre everybody having a cell phone. And I just gave people my pager number and they would just leave me a voicemail. Sometimes I'd give them a pager number. They wouldn't even know they were calling a pager. They just thought they got my voicemail. And so that's, that's how broke I was. And I did things like I would buy whole chickens And I would break that chicken down and I would get three or four meals out of that chicken. I didn't know what I know now and carbs are cheap. So I had a lot of carbs back then, but I would make a giant thing of, let's say, chili. And I would make it a lot more liquidy than I do today. And I would do that for a reason. When I would take the, the meat and all the veg out to eat it, I would use a slotted spoon and I would leave behind a lot of the, the juice. And then when that juice was pretty much like getting kind of thin then I would throw, um, I would throw rice in there, and I would let that rice absorb the chili uh, broth, and that would give me another three or four days of meals. Now I might not eat them in a row, but I would, you know, put them away in the refrigerator, and like maybe every other day that would be lunch. So I used a lot of the stuff that I'm going to uh, talk about today, even though it was more a carb-heavy lifestyle. You know, when you start looking at what you can buy a a big bag of potatoes for it's so much cheaper than even the dollar menu at McDonald's. Right. And so I learned how to cook really good and I learned how to, to live really well. Okay. 
really well back then, even though I was dead broke. And that made me so much more free to go out and do the things that a young person wants to do. Now, it would have probably have been better had I not done that, though I may never have met my wife because I met my wife in a country western bar. Okay, so had I not had that habit, I might have never met her and my life would be crap without her. Right. But my point is, I had that freedom to go fishing to one of my friends, you know, some of my friends. And I had a lot of friends that were older than me, so they were not in this place. We're like, hey, man, we're all going out Friday. We're going to go down downtown Dallas and go to five points or whatever. Like I could say yes when a lot of people in my age group were like, I don't have the money to go out this weekend. And the main difference, because there wasn't a lot of things to cut, right? There wasn't a lot of stuff to actually cut, was what I chose to do as far as eating. And I will tell you that I did use some strategies with going out to eat. Here's an example. I remember back then, about once a month, there would be a coupon in the paper, and my buddy Brad and I used to do this religiously. We'd get like an extra copy of the paper. It was like $12.99 for a steak and salad bar at Steak and Ale. And so we would go down there and maybe buy a couple of drinks and be under 20 bucks a piece, still leave plenty of money to tip. Uh, you know, drink a couple of beers, draft beers back then were a couple bucks. Um, and what we would do is we would gorge on the salad bar, okay, and then get a, a takeout box for most of the steak and the two sides. So effectively you got two meals and a couple beers under $10 a meal. Right. And that was splurging. That was spending a lot of money. That was, that was spending more money than we had, but yet we had figured out how to live life where we could do that. You know? So cooking as a prepper skill saves money. And that alone is a huge part of prepping because if I need to build up, any kind of reserve of anything that costs money. The two costs are real estate space, right? You can only store so much. You only have so much room and the material cost, the, the capital cost. So it's money saving. It's a huge part of lifestyle design though. Everything I'm going to talk about doing today. Well, 90% of what I'm going to talk about doing today um, is going to be keto, right? So if you want to eat keto, people think it's really expensive to eat keto, but it doesn't have to be. And what you'll find about keto is you start eating keto, you eat less. So you might spend more money per meal, but if you go from three meals a day to two, which for most people will naturally occur without even an intent to intermittent fast. You'll just find yourself like getting up in the morning and especially if you go do something, right? Like go out and take care of your garden or whatever and get on with your life. Maybe have a cup of coffee with a tablespoon of heavy cream in it. You just don't really feel the need to eat and so you end up pushing lunch later and later 12 two o'clock you don't even care anymore about uh that first meal of the day so now you've cut your total meals by a third so you've cut your cost by maybe a 20 percent because breakfast is usually a cheaper meal uh then you get better at reusing things so there's just tons of cost savings that get integrated then with that lifestyle design you're eating more nutritious healthier food and you're not wasting time and energy. My son really wanted to take my wife and I out because it was Mother's Day on Sunday. And we did that. But we would have been so much better off staying right here and throwing some stuff on the blacktop or the grill and having them come over. But they didn't want to do it. So we. But when you, I just think about how much time we spend when we go out to eat. And sometimes that's good. 
sometimes you're meeting from friends and you make a three hour meal out of it and you, you pick a right time where you don't sit there for 45 minutes waiting for a table. You pick the right time where the place isn't so crowded. You can't hear each other. Yeah. That's all good and well. And I love stuff like that. But if you're doing it a couple times a week, the cost and time suck is huge. So it's a big part of lifestyle design. And like I said in the beginning, we got to eat. We got to eat. So let's talk about some stuff that you can do in your kitchen that will start making your life maybe just a little bit better. So anybody that knows me knows one of my favorite things in the world is a jalapeno pepper. I grow probably more jalapenos than any other thing that I grow in my garden, especially if you look at, you know, production during the summer. And I love jalapenos in many things. I love jalapenos diced up in eggs. If I make guacamole, I throw jalapenos in it. I don't make a lot of guacamole anymore because I found uh, you get it's 15 or 18 little containers, single size containers of guacamole. That's really nothing but organic mashed avocado. It doesn't really have much added to it at Costco for like 10 bucks. And you throw it in the freezer and you take two or three out at a time. So you always have some some guac or avocado mash available. Um, but, you know, when, when I even when I use that a lot of times, I'll dice up some jalapeno and throw it in there. I'll enhance it, et cetera. Um, and my favorite thing to do with jalapenos is put cheese or crawfish or shrimp or sausage or a mixture of cheese in one of those things or shredded chicken, something inside them, wrap them in bacon and put them on the grill. And my secret for grilling is very high heat indirect when you're doing things like that. So what I do, I have a six burner uh, large Weber. I put four burners on two on each side, the center. And I'll talk about another little hack here in a bit is where I put my food that I'm cooking when it's something like that. And I cook with indirect heat and the jalapenos that come out amazing. But what happens is, you know, I'm pretty tolerant of spice. I don't think pains a flavor, but I've never had a jalapeno cooked that way that I couldn't eat. Occasionally you might get a little bit of pith left behind and you get a little bit of a burn, but you get through it. It's not like the whole thing's that bad, but my wife, not as much. So here's your secret to making amazing stuffed jalapenos with almost no heat. It is not sit there and scrape for half an hour to get every bit of the pith out. It's too much work. You take a spoon, you take a knife, you cut the top part of white, boom, knock it out. That's it. Okay. When you're going to make stuffed jalapenos, take a pot of water, throw some salt in it, turn it on high to get it to boil. Cut your peppers so you're not watching the pot and the watch pot never boils. Get it to a rolling boil. Okay, get all your peppers ready to go. Get a colander, a strainer of some kind, put it in your sink. Throw your peppers in the water. If you want to cut the heat by about half, 30 seconds. If you want to cut it to almost no heat at all, 60 seconds, no longer. Dump them into the colander and immediately hit them with cold water out of your sink. Having a bowl sitting by that you could dump them into full of iced water is not overkill, but it's not necessary. But you want to stop that cooking. They'll be bright green. They'll be a little more flexible, but they will not be cooked yet. But capsaicin is highly water-soluble in boiling water. And it will basically separate the capsaicin from the peppers, and you'll be able to eat them, and they will not burn the palate of a kid. A child will be able to eat them. They'll have all the – if you do two minutes, they will be flavorless. 60 seconds on the long side. Try 50. Try 45. Try – dial them in. Until you figure out the number for the peppers that you're sourcing, 
that works best for you. Again, 30 seconds will give you about half of the heat remains. So if you're starting out with a really mild pepper, that might be nothing because like some like jalapeno nata or whatever, jalapeno or whatever, it has almost no heat to begin with. If you have a pretty hot pepper, 30 seconds will leave you with a mild heat. 60 seconds will just eviscerate, it'll be gone, right? And you can figure out, that is like one of the, the best, it's actually the thing that I just did for my wife when we made some this weekend. And I'm like, I need to do another cooking show because of stuff like that. It's, it's so simple and so easy to go. Next is when you're going to make steak, not a pino. That's it. Jason Elliott's got it. Not a pino. Um, but when you're going to make steak, um, I think most people are aware now, if you want a good sear, you don't want moisture. Okay. You don't want a lot of water. When you put something with water down on a hot surface, you get, even though it's a very thin layer, you're essentially boiling it and you're not going to get that great mollard reaction. But I think that the way you can enhance this is a great deal. Pre-salt your steaks. And I'm also going to reiterate, I don't think it's a good idea to, if you're going to use like a, you're going to do a rub and you're going to do like garlic, thyme and rosemary and black pepper. That is a fantastic seasoning for steak, by the way. Okay. If you're going to do it on the grill, flat top, frying pan, broiler, anything other than sous vide. I really don't think it makes sense. And you can even do with sous vide. You can do what I'm about to say and then add your seasoning later, but it'll just matter less. To add that rub or those other ingredients when you do the initial salting. And I like to salt the steak minimum 30 minutes before I cook it. Minimum 30. I prefer an hour. It won't hurt anything if you throw them in the refrigerator overnight and cook them the next day. If you leave them much longer than that, they start to cure to a point where they start to kind of actually dry out a bit because the salt will draw water out initially. And then the, the water that it draws out will become salt water and it will draw back into the steak. And this will get, instead of having a steak with no flavor inside it and all the salt on the outside, you'll get salt deeper into the body of the meat. But it does something else, it, especially if you use like a Redmond's or something like that. And um, you're going to do a Redmond salt. You will notice that that meat turns a really deep red and it will break down some of the texture. It will make it more tender and it will tend to make the steak more juicy. But when you when you're ready to put it on the grill, you'll find that a lot of even though a lot of moisture goes back in the steak, you'll have quite a bit of surface moisture. But if you give it a good pat down and dry it really good, it gets kind of sticky and you'll get, then you go ahead and put your any other seasonings you want on after that, and you'll get a really dry, sticky surface for your herbs, and you will get one of the most amazing sears that you could ever hope for. It, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what that'll do. So pre-salt your steaks. Um, another way, and it just so happens that Walt is asking, do you have any tips for cooking frozen steaks? Do you thaw and get to room temperature? Um Let's break a myth right now. You know how they tell you, take your steak, yeah, and leave it sit for 30 minutes and let it come up to room temperature before you sear it, and that way you'll get a better sear? Um, 100% absolute, oft-repeated by famous chefs, bullshit. And the reason I know this, and there's some videos by Guga who did the same thing I did. I just never made a video. You know that little thermal gun I teach people about that tells you the service temperature of things? Take a steak out of the refrigerator, shoot the thermal gun on it, 
it will probably be around 36 to 38 degrees. Leave it sit somewhere, okay, until for half an hour and take the surface temperature again. It'll probably be within a degree or two of where it started. It takes a very long time to the point is it's not actually healthy uh, or safe to leave that steak out long enough where the surface temperature actually gets to like 65, 70 degrees. It's just a myth. It's the same thing they say when they say when you take something off and you let it rest. Totally do that. We'll get to that later. That the juices go back down inside. The juices do not go back down inside. What happens is the viscosity of the juice doesn't bleed as bad when you cut it. But nothing goes back inside. That's bullshit. There's a ton of stuff. Hollywood shows, you know, cooking channel shows, all that shit. It's all bullshit. And the whole thing about the temperature coming up on the surface, try it yourself. Get one of the little E-Tech City thermal guns, right? Point it at the steak, take its temperature on the surface, wait 30 minutes, do it, wait 60 minutes, do it, and you'll see that any reasonable amount of time to leave a steak out, you're not going to make that much of a difference. It's really not. Dry is the way to go. As far as frozen steaks, you can take a frozen steak out, throw it straight on the grill, and get decent results. I've done it. There's another way that I do frozen steaks, though, that I'll say because it's actually on my list. But that's just I'll, – I'll hit that one. So, Walt, your question's answered. If you have a um, – if you have a addition to that, go ahead, and I will, uh, of course, I'll follow up on it for Q&A. All right. Next up, though, is exactly that, pre-seasoning and vacuum sealing steaks. So I do this almost exclusively for sous vide. And you remember what I said about salting? If I have the time, I will salt a steak or a couple. I usually do four, six, eight of these. I usually do pairs because there's two of us in the household at a time, right? When I salt a steak and I put it in the refrigerator, like I said, I take a sheet pan, like that you put, you know, bake cookies on in the oven. And I take a cooling rack, like you're supposed to take cookies off the sheet pan and set on the cooling rack. The cooling racks will fit right in the sheet pan. I salt the steak and I put it on that cooling rack with that pan underneath it, and I put it in the refrigerator for an hour, two hours overnight. If I'm doing what I'm about to tell you, and I have the time, I will do that to a steak. Then I will season it with what other rub, just like I'm going to cook it. Then I'll throw it in vacuum seal bags. And now I use a chamber vac, but it doesn't really matter. However, you vacuum seal. And I will vacuum seal those steaks. I will label and date them, what they're seasoned with, what the, you know, it's a ribeye, it's a strip steak, it's pork, whatever. And I will put the seasoning, you know, something that will remind me of what I season them, just so I know. I will take those steaks out of the freezer, 4.30 in the afternoon, maybe getting them to 140 in sous vide would take an hour. And I generally go about an hour and a half to two hours in sous vide because you start to break down some of the fat, the connective tissue and all a little bit at that range, even with lower temperatures. And uh, you'll never overcook it. I don't like to do a steak for like six hours in sous vide. You can, but it really starts to change the texture in not a great way. But at about two hours, the fat will be where when you eat it, the fat kind of melts in your mouth. And I, I just love that, especially grass-fed beef, which I eat pretty much exclusively at this point, will um, sometimes have a little tougher fat than corn-fed beef, right? So that is a great way to get that really tender fat. Um, but I will take it out if I wanted to do two hours to an hour and a half. I'll just add a half hour. 
I'll set my sous vide to the temperature. I'll throw that thing in there dead frozen. It'll take 20 to 30 minutes to fully defrost. And then you're cooking as though it was defrosted. And this makes a lot of sense for busy people. You come home. Did you take anything out for dinner? No. Did you take out anything? No, I wouldn't have asked. You see what I mean? Uh, right? That, that, that happens all the time. And then what happens? Well, let's do DoorDash. Let's go out to eat. Or let's eat some crap out of a box because it's easy. Because we forgot to take something out. When we forget to take something out, I go grab a couple of those uh, vacuum-sealed steaks. Throw them in the sous vide, takes an extra half hour, and I don't have to even pay attention to them while they cook. That's why I love sous vide. And again, sous vide, when you sear it, same thing. Really get that meat dry before you do your sear. I'll also give you another thing that you can do with sous vide that's not even on my list. You can totally season your steaks. You can sous vide them. You can vacuum seal them again or leave them vacuum sealed in the same bag, pre-cooked. You can freeze them. You can freeze them. And then the day you want to sear them, you can just let them defrost. They're already cooked. And then you can give them a good hard sear and bring them up to temperature. Or you can pitch them in the sous vide, right? And you can um, just set them at a lower temperature that will thaw them and make them serving temperature, say 125. Even if you have, and this is cool. If you have a wife like I do that wants her significantly done more than yours, you can pre-cook pairs of steaks and you can pre-cook one up to, let's say, 145 and 138 for you. Package them, label them so you know this one's medium, this one's medium well. You can sear, you can do a reverse sear. So you sear your steak, you season your steak, you sear your steak, you put it in the sous vide. Yeah, so it's already seared. You cook it to its desired temperature. You throw it in the freezer. All you have to do then, again, you set your temperature to 120, 125. You're not going to further cook steak at all at that point. But it will thaw very quickly, and it will be nice, warm serving temperature. There's a lot of ways to play with that sous vide stuff that is really, really cool that can make your life easier. Because you can do this, you know, take two or three hours on a Saturday, and you don't have to do the whole week. Do a whole bunch of stuff and pick and choose when you use it. Just keep a freezer inventory so you know that you, what you have and you, you, you can find it. Uh, we have a lot of freezers, so that's something we have to, like, discipline ourselves about once every three or four months to actually empty the freezers and re-inventory them so that we don't have that one thing laying in the bottom that we meant to eat that we forgot about three years from now, right? Uh, next on, zucchini lasagna. So when we got into um, keto, one of the things that we really missed was Italian food. We love pizza, right? And we love lasagna. Pizza ended up being really easy. Stop trying to make crusts, right? Just take a cast iron skillet, throw a bunch of good pizza shit in there with no crust and eat it with a fork. I, that, that's that simple. But when we tried to do lasagna, we started looking for what were the alternatives and noodles to create the layers. Now, I will tell you, you can pretty much do lasagna like I said pizza. Do a layer of meat, do a layer of like ricotta, uh, a ricotta mix, which I'm not going to get into today, but your basic ricotta mix, one big thing of ricotta cheese, and you want the full fat stuff because it has less carbs, to about a cup of good shredded hard Parmesan, uh, a couple tablespoons of parsley, or you can do it with like thyme, oregano, and basil, but you know, 
some some herb seasoning, but fresh chopped parsley is the way to go. One egg, I use a duck egg. Mix that up. There's your ricotta fill, and it's freaking simple, and it's so much better than just straight ricotta. Um, but what we did is we started using zucchini, and we got one of the Y peelers, and we would make long, flat zucchini noodles, and then they were sopping wet. And then we would salt them and we would damp them on a towel and we would lay them down. And then we would make our lasagna as though they were the noodles. And what we found is when you cut it and you were trying to eat it, that long piece of zucchini would just pull out. It didn't cut nice. It didn't bite through nice because of how it was cooked. So I started thinking, how can I just speed this whole thing up? And I realized if I take my food processor with a chopping blade on the thin setting, I can take two zucchinis and go, done. That fast, I have discs. And we just lay down a layer of the discs, and that's a noodle. And then we'll do like, what we'll do, we'll lay down a layer of the disc zucchini. We'll fry up, let's say, two pounds of ground beef, and we'll season that with some Italian seasoning. Again, basil, rosemary, thyme, simple salt, pepper. Lay that down. Then we'll do a layer of zucchini. Then we'll do a layer of uh, uh, sauce, tomato sauce. Rouse, R-A-O-S, if you want low carb, if you care, Low carb is great. It's not even marketed as low carb. It's just a good spaghetti marinara sauce type thing that doesn't have added sugar. And you can't like eat it by the gallon, but it's low enough that doing this won't matter. So you put down a layer of that. Then we would put down a layer of the ricotta mix and then a layer of zucchini and then a layer of Italian sausage and a layer of zucchini and another layer of sauce and then top it all with a good Italian cheese bread and bake that. Stupid simple. Now, here's the hack for any kind of lasagna we're inserting a vegetable, and honestly, lasagna as a whole. Have you ever made lasagna, and you're all excited to eat it, and then you realize, you know, lasagna will be better if I let it get cold and cut it the next day, because it'll stay in a nice form, and it's literally like lasagna soup in there. What we do, we use the deep, heavy-duty, disposable aluminum throwaway pans, and we get quite a few uses before we throw one away to make our lasagna in. We get two of them. We take the one we're going to cook in and we poke a bunch of holes in it. We make a few balls out of aluminum foil. We put it in one pan and we nest the pan with the holes and the food in it inside the second pan. And all the excess water drips into the lower pan. And you use the top pan with the holes in it until you've cooked out of it enough times that you can't get it clean. You don't care anymore and you throw it away. You get a new one. You poke holes in the one that's been the bottom pan. You move it. You promote it to cooking pan. And, you know, you get rid of one of those every couple, three months, and they're like a buck or two. And you get really great lasagna that's not in a soup, especially when you're cooking some like zucchini. Zucchini and eggplant are both great for this. Same thing with the egg. You use the Asian long eggplants like ping tongue. Same thing. Decide how thick you want them. Set your food processor to that. Straight through. Perfect discs and don't worry about trying to cover every square inch it doesn't matter it's not a big deal and we have had so much fun with that we just made a batch of that last week we're still eating it and it's one of those meals you make enough especially a two-person household like you're eating and then you're eating and then like let's eat something else tonight and then we'll go back tomorrow so really great way to go and don't skip out on using a good italian sausage you have two layers of two different meats because that's really the secret of the sauce Next up today, how would you like to make super crispy chicken wings that will still be keto as long as you use some limits? 
right? And I don't mean no carb. I just mean low carb per wing. I mean the crispiest freaking chip chicken wings you've ever had. And it will be stupid easy. And you probably already have what you need at home and you didn't know that it did this. And it will make them crispy with the indirect grilling method I gave you because we just made them. And when you bit into them, you literally heard them crunch. You want to know how to do that? Here's the secret. Baking powder. Baking powder. Now, baking powder has some carbs in it. And the best I can get, uh, Clabber Girl is the brand I use, is about seven grams of carbohydrate and no fiber to the tablespoon. But I used it for some wings that I made. And I'm going to hold off on telling you exactly how I made those wings because I got another tip for you here that involves what we did for that. But I used three tablespoons and I made 46 wings, right? So you're talking about 21 carbs across 46 wings. You're less than half a carb a wing. It probably didn't need that much, but you can adjust it if you care about carbs to adjust the carbs. And again, if you're keto, a lot of people think you got to be under 20 carbs. If you're doing net, that's the target. If you're doing total carbs, you're not doing net carbs. About 50 for most people will put you in ketosis, especially if you don't have all 50 of them in one meal, right? If you break 25 and 25 and some of those are net carbs and they're real net carbs, right? They are fiber. They're not some like low carb tortilla, which I, I, I trusted it. I was wrong. I watched people on YouTube do the glucose test and whatever. And you know, those carb balanced tortillas from mission, they don't, they're not low carb. They actually have a worse response. But with this, you just calculate your carbs. All you do is whatever marinade, whatever you're going to do to your wings, figure out how many tablespoons you can use for the carb allowance you want to give yourself, get them in a bowl, and sprinkle it lightly and mix them and sprinkle it. And so what you want it to do, you won't, it'll disappear. You'll swear you didn't even do it. It goes into the skin. And when it goes into that skin and that skin cooks, it gets a crisp like you will not freaking believe. And the Primal Kitchen stuff from Mark Sisson that is the buffalo wing sauce for that. Buffalo wing sauce, easy to make low carb on your own butter and franks, okay? But the stuff from Mark's Kitchen the primal pal primal kitchen or whatever that shit is so good i don't even make it anymore i just use that okay another tip for the if you like blue cheese with your wings the one thing that you know is no blue cheese dressing actually has a a, a a proper amount of blue cheese crumbles in it so you can either buy a good blue cheese and add your own crumbles you can make your own blue cheese but this is what i've done i don't even use blue cheese dressing anymore I throw blue cheese crumbles and I buy a big tub of them at Costco for like eight bucks. I take a little dish and I just throw blue cheese crumbles in there and I don't toss my wings in sauce because then there's sauce everywhere. I put a little dish of sauce, a little dish of crumble and my wings naked on the plate. Dip the wing, dip the wing into the blue cheese crumbles, crumbles attached to the, the sauce and it's the perfect bite. If you like blue cheese, if you like ranch, there's no hope for you. You should totally jump off a building right now. I'm just kidding. I don't really understand why people put ranch dressing on just about anything. And by the way, if you make a video saying you have a recipe and all you do is dump a bottle of ranch dressing on anything and then cook it, that's not a recipe. It's a mess and you should have done it. I'll let go my hatred of ranch. Uh, I'll tell you the story someday why I have such a hatred of ranch. I won't do it today. I don't have time, but, uh, there's a reason that I'm probably a little bit unfair and it's something that happened when I was young and involved in illness. 
but we'll we'll let that go for today. But those super chicken, crispy chicken wings. And if you fry them, then they're insane. And if you twice fry them, which means let them cool a little bit and throw them back in the freezer, they, they're amazing what they'll do. This is a, a lot of Korean fried chicken recipes call for doing that, or potato starch or corn starch. But I have found that the baking powder tends to have a little less carb and work a little bit better. But all three of them will work tablespoon at a time, but sprinkle. You want to make sure you get it all over and absorbed into the skin of the chicken. Just fantastic. Next up, cauliflower rice. There's a lot of people that have a definitive hatred of cauliflower. I don't hate it, but I don't care for it in general until I learned how to make it not suck. Cauliflower has the worst possible version of cabbage stink, especially if it's done wrong. Like steamed cauliflower is just nasty stinking. The cauliflower that comes in a bag that says microwave for two minutes or whatever stinks your house up when you uh, microwave it. I buy cauliflower rice. I do not make my own. Yes, it has more water in it once frozen. I get that. I'm going to tell you how to deal with that. It doesn't really matter. I buy it, the microwave pouches, for a reason. Back to Costco. You can buy a giant bag, and it's got a bunch of little bags. And each bag is a great serving for two people. Usually there's some left over. You can use two if you want uh, inside it, and it's all organic. And it's cheap. It's cheaper than you'll ever get it for going out and buying heads of cauliflower. If you grow cauliflower, by all means, make your own cauliflower rice. But when you buy that stuff, first thing you do, take that bag. When you take it out of the freezer, poke some holes in the bottom of it with a knife and set it in a colander and throw it in the sink and let it defrost. It takes a surprising amount of time, a surprising amount of time for that shit to defrost. It's kind of crazy. Like take it out in the morning if you're going to cook it that night. Let it sit there. A lot of the water will simply drain out of it before you cook it. Take that bag that you poke those little holes in, small holes, and squeeze without mashing it as much water out of it as you can get. Get a skillet. Put a good fat in it. Okay, so Wagyu tallow is kind of a go-to for me. Ghee, straight up butter. But butter will, if it's not ghee, will brown a lot, maybe a little bit more than you want it to early on. Um, Olive oil, bacon fat, I don't care. Get a, a decent, a couple tablespoons in the pan. Throw your cauliflower rice in the pan. Cook it until you cook the freaking stink and the moisture out of it. And then do whatever else you want to. I don't care what you're doing. That is step one. And if you do that, what you'll find is you'll, you'll, you'll take that cauliflower stink and that cauliflower deep brassy like old cabbage and not in a good way taste that cauliflower has, you will cook it out. It will become very neutral. And now it will actually, when people say it tastes like whatever you cook it in, no, now it will actually taste like what you cook it in. So there's a lot of things we do with this that is really easy and it completely changes the calculus. Here's one. We eat a lot of steak, obviously. And one of my favorite like full meals, steak, a little bit of asparagus and cauliflower pesto rice. You do exactly what I said with the cauliflower, right? Then you go ahead and at the end of it, when it's nice and cooked, just take a couple, kill the heat. It's nice and hot. A couple tablespoons of pesto and mix it in. That's it. That's it. And you get, it's pesto rice. And it is like, now it opens up. Like I do that with steak, but if you like kind of chicken and a pesto pasta, 
Cook your chicken however you like. Serve it with that rice. Right? By the way, take the chicken. Like, I like to dice up chicken thigh. Uh, season it however you want, kind of going toward the Italian. You don't need a lot of seasoning for this, though, because of the pesto. So salt and pepper, garlic is pretty much all you need. Good technique on your saute. Get a good brown on that chicken. Yeah. Deglaze your pan with a little white wine or a little chicken broth. Once you deglaze that pan, a couple tablespoons of uh, pesto and toss the chicken in the pesto. You won't miss pasta. You won't. And, and the thigh is the, is the meat to go to with that. It is so freaking awesome. It is so freaking awesome. Um, next, cilantro rice. Cilantro is, you know, people either feel that cilantro is the most delicious herb on the planet or it tastes like feet. There may be some people who take the approach to cilantro. It's okay. I've never met anybody. It's like something that people have really strong opinions on. But I will add like a little bit of chili powder, a little bit of cumin, and a big, giant, heaping handful of diced cilantro into that. And it's great to pair with any kind of Tex-Mex, Mexican, Spanish cuisine. It's fantastic. And it's, again, it's so simple. You cook the stink out of the rice, and then you add whatever you want to it. And it, I, with cilantro, if you cook cilantro, you cook the flavor straight out of it. So it's another kill the heat and fold the cilantro in right before you serve it. And then do a little bit of a diced up cilantro on the top of it. And put that alongside, like, make a skirt steak like you were making it for fajitas. And, hell, let's do, you know, surf and turf fajitas. Grill some shrimp and, like, a cilantro garlic butter and put that on the plate with the cilantro rice. You won't miss a tortilla. Right? You Some good chopped avocado and some other stuff with that. Maybe some, some grilled peppers and onions, right? And a little bit of green onion on top of the cilantro rice as well and a good cheese. I mean, throw a little salsa or pico on there if you want to. What, what do you need? How much more do you need, right? Um, and uh, we'll, I get questions coming in. I'm, I am highlighting them all, guys. I'll come back around. I'll do my best for you on them. Uh, keep, those, keep those all caps coming because I don't think I'm missing any right now. Uh, K-Bonk also added something right here I want to talk about. Cilantro stalks add tons of flavor. Don't throw your cilantro stalks away at all. And you, if you have tons of flavor with cilantro, you can cook it into something. So when I do chili, I always have cilantro. I really finely chop the stalks, and I put them in near the end, but I go ahead and cook them into because they can be a little bit stringy. Or if I'm doing a Mexican-style soup, a Hispanic Tex-Mex-style soup, cilantro stems in the soup. When I'm making broth, if I think cilantro would go with it, I'll put a whole bundle of them just in the broth when I'm making a, like a bone stock or something as well. So I agree with that. Don't throw those away. If you have a freeze dryer or a dehydrator and you don't need them right now, you can dehydrate them and you can uh, crumble them into a jar and you can put them right in the soups and stews that way. And you don't need to freeze dry to get a good result with the stalks of cilantro anyway. The leaves, you're not going to do really well. Um, you're not going to do really well with um with uh dehydration there's going to be no flavor left at all you have to freeze dry if you want to do something with the leaves uh that will last for you uh next up mac and cheese cauliflower rice i've seen people do like roasted chunks of cauliflower and make a mac and cheese out of it i bet it's good i like simplicity in my life we every time we go to costco we buy a bag or two of the big bags of the organic cauliflower rice so we have it all the time I don't know how you make your mac and cheese. However you make your mac and cheese, 
cook the rice the way I said, cook the stink out of it, get the moisture out of it, use it like noodles and make your mac and cheese. Our favorite way, uh, I'm not going to get into what you do with cheese and what cheese you use. That's very much, uh, there's arguments among mac and cheese aficionados about what cheese mixture to use. But what we really love to do is we dice up bacon and jalapeno. We mix that in and we reserve some of the bacon. And once we get it into a casserole dish that we're going to bake to finish it, we take some bacon crumbles on the top and some pork rind panko crumbs on the top and bake that. And then the last little thing to do, about 30 seconds to a minute before you take it out, kick the broiler on and crisp that up a little bit. It will blow your mind. It will not. The one thing I'll say about it, it's the texture is going to be more like uh, what's the thing with rice uh, risotto or more like a cheesy grits than a typical macaroni noodle. If you do the rice, you won't care. It's awesome. Now, here's the other thing you can do. How many of you guys like things like shrimp and grits? Season the rice and the cheesy, cheesy rice, less to a mac and cheese style and more to what you would do with grits and then do your fish and grits or do your shrimp and grits using cauliflower rice. Like it's, it's just fantastic. As long as you follow the procedure of get the water out and cook the stink out and don't do anything to try to season it or whatever, or add liquid. Like sometimes I do chicken broth for certain things or whatever. Don't do that until the stink is cooked out. When you get a nice dry product and it stops smelling like cauliflower ass, it's time to go ahead and do your other flavorings and things like that. Same thing with soup, right? Like if you want to do uh, chicken and rice, do cauliflower, but don't just throw the cauliflower in the soup. Then the stink of the cauliflower ends up in the broth and the whole thing stinks like cauliflower. Cook it, drop it in at the end. Trust me on the cauliflower rice. We'll move on because there's more things to life than cauliflower. All right, next, chicken. In general, I don't do a lot of whole chickens. I break them down because a leg and thigh are dark meat. A thigh is a pretty consistent cut, and a leg is tapered. A wing is a very small white meat cut, and a breast is a very large white meat cut. So when you're cooking a whole chicken, you're taking an animal that has bumpy and lumpy and different cuts, and you're doing it together. But you can do it well. The best chicken you will ever make in an oven hole or on a grill hole with indirect heat will be to spadgecock the chicken. It's hard to explain on a, you know, without a chicken in front of me, and I'm not going to have a raw chicken here, but I just take shears and cut the backbone out of the chicken. There's a, a bone in the breast. It's like a little carlish thing that you pull out and you flatten the chicken out and you cook the chicken skin side up, flesh bone side down in the oven. Okay. But this is the magic. Whatever you're going to season the chicken with, loosen the skin on the breast, the thigh and the leg and shove your herbs and other seasonings underneath the skin and then put them on the skin as well. And on the backside of the chicken, but get it under the skin and cook that chicken with that stuff under the skin. And the flavor and juiciness you get will be amazing. It's also not a terrible idea if you have the space and the time to do a saltwater brine on a chicken or even a dry brine, but it doesn't work as well as a wet brine, in my opinion, with poultry. But a chicken generally is small enough, unlike a turkey, that it's pretty easy to do a wet brine on. So wet brine your chicken, give it a good dry off, spatchcock, probably before you brine it, actually. 
seasoning underneath the skin and go. Okay, now let's start stacking things back together. Remember what I said about the chicken wings? Yes, get that that baking powder out of your um, out of your shelf before you add your seasonings to the skin. Salt is fine, but your herbs and stuff do that after this step. Really lightly, just put a little bit of baking powder, especially over the parts of the skin that really are up where they're going to get nice and crispy, and you'll get great crispy skin. The next thing, though, don't put that chicken in the oven and immediately begin roasting it with the skin exposed. As long as it takes to roast, now we're talking about a full-size chicken here, like a game hen maybe wouldn't be as much. But a full-size chicken, cover it and remove, like just loose foil, cover it, keep an eye on your temperature with, and I recommend a remote thermometer, like the meter, you put it into the breast, you know what your temperature is internally. Um, When you are about 15, 20 minutes from being ready to pull that bird, take the cover off and let the skin crisp up then. And it will be fantastic. Now let's take it to another level. The stuff you're going to season it with. Make a compound butter, which just means you take the seasonings. Let's say you're going to use parsley, basil, and thyme and garlic. Great. Get all the seasonings you want to use. Okay. Put that in a bowl. Take some room temperature butter. Throw as much as you need to make however much you need in there. And mix it up. So you want room temperature butter. You cannot put butter in the microwave for like a few seconds to soften it. It doesn't work that way. You need to take the butter out of the refrigerator, set it on the counter for a couple hours before you make compound butter. It'll get nice and soft but not melted. Use a fork and mash the, the seasoning into it. Now, take you're gonna, you know, unless you want to use gloves or something, I never do. I just wash my hands. Push that herb butter up under the skin of that chicken. Save a little bit of it, yeah? Go ahead and melt that and get a brush. And when you take that cover off the chicken, real quick, give it a brushing of that butter on top of the skin. And you take something dead stupid simple like a chicken. And the level that you elevate by taking those extra little steps is unbelievable. You won't get it, especially if you, if you brine that chicken. That will be some of the best you ever ate. And there's a ton of different things you can do. You can throw that on a bed of like carrot, celery, and onions. And so then you have the juice goes down and you have that. There's all kinds. Celery is another great pairing for something like that. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to use that. If you're a, if you are a potato person, you know, get fingerling potatoes. I, I don't eat a lot of potato anymore. Get fingerling potatoes, cut them lengthwise, give them a little bit of salt, lay them in the pan uh, with the, 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 not the peel, the uh, the meat side, the flesh side down, so it will will cook a little bit on your baking pan. Add a little bit of fat so it doesn't stick. Put your chicken on top of it. Let the chicken juices go into the freaking potatoes. And if you really now, now that you've done that, right? Um, black garlic compound butter. Wow, says Eddie. Oh hell yeah, black garlic is. I didn't have it, but in this in my notes today, black garlic is the bomb. Um, but what you can also do, you make those roasted potatoes with your chicken. Take them out of the pan. Let your chicken rest. Take those potatoes and just push down on them with like a spatula just so they start to crush. So little puffs come out of the side. Take the the chicken fat that's in the bottom of the pan. Throw that in a frying pan. Throw it on your stovetop and brown those potatoes before you serve. Now, again, I don't eat a lot of potatoes, but if I was going to eat potato, if I was going to have a cheat day, well, then, you know, my buddy David always says, if you're going to cheat, do it with the pretty girl. 
right? And, and he's never actually talking about girls. He's actually talking about things like this, that you, you, you want to do it right. And that would be doing it right. And the, or even if you have a, like enough fat available to deep fry that, it's insane because you have all the flavor of the chicken into those potatoes. And then you've got the starch conversion going on. You get the little frayed edges from the mash and that crisps up. It's like a combination of the best French fry and potato tot and whole roasted potato. You could all like all together. And this is, this is just nothing I'm giving you is hard. And it's the kind of thing I've, I've done it because I love cooking for people. People come over and you cook and they want the recipe. You notice how limited I'm being with ingredients and recipe. There's very few ingredients to these things. These are techniques and understanding how the food chemistry works. Yeah. And this is how we can create this incredible gourmet experience at home without breaking the bank. Like, cause if you can't make filet mignon taste good, right. Or, you know, a two and a half pound main lobster, all you do is throw it in a pot of water and it's still technique though, right? You got to know when to stop the cooking and all, but like the most expensive ingredients, obviously anybody can make those good, but we don't need, in fact, I personally think ribeye is way better than filet mignon, even though it costs less. But here's another little hack. You won't find it a lot. And you don't see a lot of them when you find them because it's a fairly short piece of the chuck primal. But the ribeye is just basically the loin, the back loin of the cow from where the strip starts. The New York strip starts up. So the base of the rib, the last rib forward up to the, up to about the shoulders, that primal is the rib eye primal. You take that primal and you cut ribeye steaks out of it. You go forward from there. It's really the same muscle, but you move up into like the shoulder and the neck where the chuck primal comes from. And that eye loin goes right through there in mostly the same shape. You'll get two to three out of the cow on both sides if you cut them nice and thick like you want them. And they're called chuck eyes. So to me, ribeye is superior in flavor to filet mignon, even though it's a little bit tougher. But chuck eye is superior to ribeye, and it costs about a third of the price. And it's plenty tender. Just because the chuck as a whole can be tough doesn't mean that that eye piece in the center is uh, tough as well. So that's one little, like, and whenever I go to, you know, even CAFO beef, I hate CAFO beef as a thing. But if I'm at a grocery store and I'm in the meat section, I generally look and see if they have any chuck eyes. And if they do, you know, I'll pick a couple up, definitely. But when I... If I buy like a half a beef, I always tell my processor, don't you dare grind up the chuck eye. Don't you dare make it into a roast. Get me as many three-quarter inch thick steaks out of it as you can. Because to me, it is one of the best pieces of meat, kind of kind of like hanger steaks and stuff like that that have always been kind of under the radar. Denver steaks, etc. All right, moving along. Let's talk about pork rind fried pork chops this is a fantastic thing to do you can use a jar or a pan or something like that it makes sense in my opinion to get a meat hammer it's like tenderizer on one side flat surface on the other and take some saran wrap or i just use kind of like second use plastic bags put the and you can do this with chicken too by the way but pork chops that are already fairly thin this is a fantastic recipe for them and it's basically like a pork schnitzel except we're not going to use breadcrumbs and we take that meat and we pound it as thin as we can. And then we season it, salt, pepper, garlic, lay down some pork rinds. And 
a little bit of almond flour and an egg and cream wash. So a lot of people just use egg. I like egg with like a couple tablespoons of whole cream. Mix that egg up. You get a really sticky. And so you drench that in there. You go into your almond flour, just like you're doing a three-station egg wash, flour, breadcrumb. You just substitute. And so you go from there and go back into your egg. And then um, what did I say to use in, in that second one? So you're using uh, almond flour. Almond flour is, I've tried coconut flour. Almond flour is better. And then so you go back from almond flour back to the egg and then the pork panko. And it takes a little bit of work. Pork panko doesn't stick as easy as breadcrumbs. But you kind of mash it in, and then this is the secret. And this is even with breadcrumbs. For anything that you do a breading, not a batter. A batter is more like dip and drop, like a beer batter. But a bread, a crumb coating, put it on a plate. Put the plate in the refrigerator. Forget the plate for a couple hours at least. Doing it in the morning and cooking that evening is even better. Doing it the day before and the next day is fine. After that, you know, how long do you want to let it sit? Just pan fry that in some oil. Butter, coconut oil, lard, bacon grease, I don't care, Wagyu towel, whatever. Fry those, hit them with some salt straight out where the salt will stick. It's still hot. That's another thing, too. You bring fries out, salt. Don't wait. Salt, as soon as they come out, when it's still hot, salt sticks and, you know, melts onto the food. My wife, when we eat that, she always says, I feel like we're cheating. We're not. It's zero carbs. Well, maybe there's a carb per pork chop from the almond flour and we use pretty small pork chops we usually eat two a piece fan freaking tastic as my wife says goodbye to me and i don't know where she's off to i don't remember swim lessons lessons with the grandkids anyway um definitely that's one of those meals that we make and you know what's good with some sort of seasoned cauliflower rice (laughs) have to bring it back around again uh next up i want to talk about making your own pastes so they, they sell these jars of like garlic ginger paste, uh, ginger paste, garlic paste, whatever. It's so much fresher and better to make your own. And I use, actually, it's our item of the day today, and it is by design, a little mini food processor to do this. But you can do it in whatever you have available. But all you do is take a bunch of garlic cloves that are peeled. And if you're using ginger, you just peel up and chunk up a bunch of ginger, stick it in the little food processor and run it until it becomes a paste. You add a little bit of water so you get the consistency that you're looking for. And you can make a garlic paste, a ginger paste. You can make an onion garlic paste, an onion ginger paste. You can do whatever you want with this. You can use green onions in it. Basically, it's a lot like making a jerk seasoning, right? We use a jerk seasoning. It's, you know, jerk seasoning is pretty much um, uh, scorpion pepper or, or habanero pepper or scotch bonnet pepper and scallion is, is the primary, not the only, but the primary thing you're going to make. It's basically a paste that you rub on chicken. So let me give you a, a real-world example of doing this and how much flavor it brings to the party. You know those chicken wings I talked about? I did those with a garlic marinade. So what I did, I took a whole head of garlic and peeled all the uh, cloves. And I don't have this on T-Spaz, and they're stupid cheap, but they're totally worth having. And if you don't have one, if you have an old – like. Uh, an inner tube laying around you're, you're comfortable with being clean enough you can make one out of a bicycle inner tube it's a tube about four inches six inches long it's made out of silicon and you put the clove in it and you roll it on a cutting board instead of mashing it with a knife and it just the peels come right off of the garlic with it and so i have one of those i don't know where we got it. i think my wife bought it 
And so I went through a whole head of garlic with that. I threw that into the mini food processor, threw half of a white onion in there. And then I put in a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of Worcestershire sauce and started processing it. And I looked at it and went, that's not liquidy enough. So I added a little water, did a little bit more, add a little water until I got a nice paste. And then I took those wings, which I broke into sections. I don't do wings whole. I do them in sections. And I threw them in a, a bowl. I did my seasoning into the paste. So I did some cumin and chili powder. And I think thyme is what I added to that, which also goes in jerk, by the way. So I put all the seasoning right in to the paste. I took the wings and I threw the paste and I massaged the wings in a tub. Then I added that baking powder, three tablespoons of baking powder for like 46 wings. When I say 46 wings, I mean 46 individual pieces. So flats and drumettes, right? And again, that came out to less than one carb a wing, about less than half a carb a wing. And the crisp on those was amazing. The other thing I did with them, right, this is like secret sauce stuff. I did the indirect oven or uh, indirect grill cooking method where the side burners are on, the center's off, they're in the center. After I laid them on the grill, I took pork panko breadcrumbs and sprinkled it on the top halfway through the cook, flipped them and, did, and hit them with some olive oil spray and did that again. It it's okay. My wife really likes it. That's why I do it. You don't need it though. If you use the, the baking powder, the, the crisp of that skin is absolutely unfreaking believable. Um, next cold smoke, then sous vide your brisket. So I did this for the workshop last year. So you take a, a, a brisket hole or a piece or whatever you want to make, throw it on your grill with a smoke tube or two. And smoke it for like eight hours of cold smoke. Now, I've, I've watched people on YouTube say that when you give it a long smoke with sous vide, it's over smoke taste. This is, this is what I do that's a bit different. Instead of immediately sous videing it, after it comes out of the cold smoker, I leave it uncovered. I put it in the refrigerator on a rack with the with the, the the drying or the cooling rack, like I said, on top of a sheet pan, and I let it air dry. And that lets the excess because what happens is when you vacuum seal it, you're forcing way more smoke into it than the meat would naturally take on. I let that sit overnight, seasoned however I want it. I put it into a cryovac bag and then I sous vide it. Now, this is the this is this is making the case for switching to a chamber vac bag because you really can't do this with a regular vacuum sealer because it will mess the seal up. Soy sauce. A couple tablespoons on both sides of that um, brisket inside the bag once it's already in the bag. And there's just – it does something. I'm not a huge fan of soy, but we're talking about, you know, a freaking 18-pound brisket with uh, four tablespoons of soy sauce added to the bag. And whatever you would normally herbs crust season your brisket with. And then when you take it out, go ahead and sear it with a torch or what have you. A torch is what I use for a brisket because it's big and odd. The beauty of this is you can cook a brisket to, let's say, 140 and do it for 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours. Anything longer than that, it's too long with a brisket, even with sous vide. You get a medium pink brisket that's fork tender it is 
it's all and, and the the you got a flat and a point with a brisket. The brit the flat is the part they make chopped brisket out of. It's got the real heavy fat marbling in it. You do that, you take that point and you slice it instead of chop it. It's almost like a Kobe steak. It's it's pretty insane because of the pure amount of uh, fat that's in that that particular cut off the brisket. So that is one everybody should do that in your life. If you have like a chamber vac like I do. And chamber vacs, the one disadvantage is there's only so much room in the chamber, so you can't fit a whole brisket in a chamber vac that most of us would own. Just cut it in half. Make two. It won't matter. I know everybody wants the big, giant brisket, but nobody eats it that way anyway. So go ahead and just cut it in half or thirds or whatever you have to do, and then put the individual bags in whatever you do for sous vide cooking. When I did it for the workshop, I did three whole briskets, and one was like probably the big super cow, right? Massive cow that this thing came from. Um, I used a, uh, a cooler, an igloo cooler, and I took a piece of plywood and I cut a, used a, 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 a hole saw that the sous vide thing would fit through. And I just set the lid open and put the plywood over it. And I did it for, I think, 36 hours. People, people raved on it. Yeah. Is soy sauce made with soy? Yes, it is. It's also fermented. And again, I'm not suggesting you make it a daily thing. So Jeff asked that. Moving on, let's talk about lemon and chicken, but specifically broth or soup. I'm not huge on the lemon chicken craze. I, I do a lemon pepper chicken that's really good. But I, I mean, there's people that like they can't get near chicken without turning into lemon pepper chicken. It's really good. But there is an old show called Everybody Loves Raymond. And Deborah, the mom, like the only thing she could make was lemon chicken. And whoever wrote that into the character was pretty switched on because it's so easy and it's so good that it can become a crutch. Right. So it's something like I might make that every other month once. I'll do a chicken thigh recipe that's on the website that I do a lemon chicken. It's kind of an emulation of the chicken that you used to get at uh, Panera Bread in the in the chicken bowl. Uh, it really came out fantastic, but it's, again, it can become a crutch. But when it comes to making chicken soup or broth, I always cut a lemon in half and throw half a lemon into the stock. The whole thing, I, I don't worry about the pith being bitter or whatever. We're talking about one half of a lemon to a stock pot. There's something about that acid and that balance that it just drastically improves chicken broth. So that's a quick one, but it's something that, many people just wouldn't really be aware of to do. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Why would I put a lemon in my chicken soup? But you, you talk to a lot of old ladies, and if they're willing to give you some of their secrets about chicken soup, I'll give you a couple of them. One, if you can get them, you use the feet. The feet have so much gelatin and collagen in them. My grandmother used to scream at the butcher down at the grocery store, crazy old Ukrainian lady. You don't give me the feet because you're ripping me off. You know, like, uh, like grandma, I don't, I don't, I don't think the chickens that come to the store came with feet on them. And the guy's like, if you want feet, we have them over there. You know, they had a little section with you. I don't want to pay extra for the foot. I bought the whole chicken. She was pretty funny. So one is the feet. Two is save your, you know, if you make wings and you buy whole wings and you part them out yourself, save those wing tips. They work a lot like the feet. There's tons of collagen in those little tips. So throw a big handful, like just put them in a little bag and freeze them. Maybe freeze a dozen to a bag. When you're making stock, take those out and add them to the stock. And you'll get a much more viscous, thick broth. Um, but yeah, the other one would be the lemon. 
And there's a lot of those old ladies. They will not tell you this. They will not tell you those things. Those three things are closely guarded secrets that I only know because I was my grandmother's grandson and I took an interest in the kitchen. And sometimes she didn't tell me. I had to watch. She had her secrets. All these old cooks do. Uh, I don't believe in secrets when it comes to cooking. I like to give away everything like I'm doing right now. Um, so that's really important. Now, I, want, I want to throw, just finish with like a lightning round because I gave you a bunch, but I want to give you so much value today. I want you to get excited about cooking. I want you, I want to get emails from people two months from now say, because all this shit you did again, you big jerk. Uh, we calculated it. We saved 400 bucks or 200 bucks or 300 bucks in the last 60 days for meals we would have eaten out or things we would have thrown away that we turned into food. And then you start compounding that over a lifetime and you're investing that money or building something with it. It starts to, it starts to add up, especially in a day and age like today where everything's expensive. So here's just some, some of this is just like some hacks and stuff. And some of this is just not even food. It's like kitchen related. I got an email today and a guy was asking me, where can I get a good can opener? And I don't know, actually, I didn't look it up. And I was thinking after I sent this guy an email, I may actually have a can opener on T-Spats. But I don't think I do. And I need to get these on. This is just made by OXO, OXO Good Grips. I've had this can opener for, I don't know, 10 years. It works just fine. And he said they all suck. I'm going to tell you a reason people think can openers suck. Most people use a can opener wrong. Now, OXO, OXO makes a clean edge opening can opener that's specifically designed to do this. I have never found a can opener. There might be one. I've never found a can opener that works like this that won't do the same thing, though. These are like 10 bucks, okay? Don't open your cans the normal way where you come from the top and you squeeze on the side like I'm doing with this coffee cup if you're watching the video, and then you're holding the can opener vertically and you're turning it and the can's spinning around. You'll always find, like, it'll miss a spot. When it gets to the end, it doesn't want to come out. It's all jagged. It wants to cut you. It seems like it doesn't work. No. When you use a can opener, turn it horizontal. Put the blade on the outside rim and the gear on the inside of the rim and hold it like this. And you're actually going to cut the side of the can underneath the rim. It will work every time. Leave the can on the countertop when you do this and turn it so you're not holding the weight up. So let it kind of just spin on the countertop while you do this. It will come out perfect. It won't cut you. You'll be able to touch it with your finger and it won't cut you. If you're using half a can of something, the lid will just sit back on there and go in the refrigerator. Maybe you want to put some foil on it to hold it still, but it'll close almost like a jar. And, you know, that would be one of those things. There's a thing called Today Days Old or something like that. It's like on Instagram or whatever. Like Today Days Old, I learned that. I think for a lot of people, that is one of those things that people never would even think because we just grow up learning to use a can opener one way that you can just turn it the other way and it works better. It's kind of like, do you know, regular slip joint pliers, plain old everyday pliers. Most of them down at the bottom, there's two little flat spots. They'll cut wire. And I mean, cleanly cut wire, like a pair of wire cutters, even though they're like a $2 pair of bargain bin slip joint pliers. Like there's a lot of stuff like that out there um, where there's really simple ways to make something work better or do another thing and people don't know about it. And to me, the, um, the can opener thing, I think I learned that about 15 years ago and I've never opened a can any other way since it just works better. It works better. And again, if you're not using everything in the can, it it, it works a lot better. 
Packrat said, that's me today, days old. And, and I, I want to bring you stuff like that, like little things like that that enhance your lifestyle. Uh, next up today, if you do use regular rice, people buy rice cookers. I talked about this right when I started the show many, many years ago. And this, this has blown people away that you can do this. And it's like, you know, for this much rice, use this many cups of water and then cook it until the water's absorbed. And blah, 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 blah. One day I was like, what happens if I treat rice like pasta? What if I just go ahead and fill up the pot and bring the water to a boil first? And then I make sure there's enough water in there that the rice will never absorb all the water. And then do like a cup of rice or two cups of rice and just throw the rice in and boil the shit out of it. And then get a fork. And as it's getting close to where I think it might have been in there long enough, Take some out and taste it, just like you do with pasta to get, you know, that al dente or whatever. Get the rice done the way you want it. And then take a colander and dump the rice in there like it was risotto or something. And drain the water off and then just use the rice for whatever, you know. Most people, you you cook rice separately anyway. Or if you're going to do a stir fry with rice in it, it works perfectly. It wor- I don't even understand why we don't all cook rice this way. Other than you're going to cook it and you want it hot right away, you don't want to cool it down. I'm telling you, if you do that, it is so freaking simple. And you don't have to use like um, like minute rice to do that or any freaking rice. Now, I don't know. I've never done wild rice or something that way or what have you. But any like jasmine rice, bombati rice, any of the rices, just boil it like pasta, throw it in the collar. And if you use rice, what you can do then is you can make up like however much rice you want for the week. And put it in a bowl and stick it in the refrigerator and take it out and use it as you want to. And it'll keep for a good week or two in the refrigerator that way. So, yeah, stop trying to time your – it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. Next up, French fries. If you do make French fries and you don't twice fry your fries, you're wrong. Deep fry your French fries. Take them out. Drain them just like you're going to eat them. Let them cool for at least 10 minutes. Put them back in the fryer basket, whatever refry them for just a couple minutes, pull them back out and drain them. They'll be three times as crispy as you can imagine. This works for sweet potato fries as well. Again, if you're keto like me and you're occasionally going to make some fries, if you're going to cheat, do it with a pretty girl. That takes kind of the wallflower, you know, future cat lady spinster and turns her into the pretty girl. All right. Twice fry your French fries or you have sinned against potato. And all potato kind. And you're cheating with the ugly girl if you're keto instead of the pretty girl. Don't do that. Cheat with the pretty girl. Uh, Next up today. um, If you use a lot of cilantro, parsley, green onion, anything like that. What you'll find is, especially if you're buying it. Like I, I grow a lot of stuff. I buy cilantro. Cilantro, you look at it the wrong way in this climate, it bolts. It's got like three leaves on it, sends up a steed. I just gave up, so I buy my cilantro. Uh, And my wife came up with this. Take a glass, fill it about halfway with water, rinse your cilantro, your parsley, whatever, because if you wash it right before you cut it when you use it raw, it's all mushy. So rinse it, give it a really good shake, get it nice and dry, leave the band on it, Put it in a glass of water. Put the glass of water into the refrigerator. If you've bought it, you probably have one of those little plastic bags in the produce section. Take the plastic bag. Put it upside. Put it over the top like a dome. 
it'll last three times as long. It'll stay fresh. And when you cut it, it's already washed. So you can pull your glass out, take some kitchen shears, cut off what you want, put the bag back on it, stick it back in. Again, this works really good for parsley. It works really good for cilantro. And it works good for green onions. With green onions, you don't want the water like halfway up the glass. So you just want uh, enough water so that the bottom roots of the onion and maybe the little bit of the bulb is in the water. And that will vastly extend the lifetime of those. Now, me, green onions, I, if I buy green onions, I go straight out to one of my aquaponics system and I stick them in there and I harvest them from there as I need to. And you get three or four uses out of an onion before you kind of like you've, you've, you've cut it too much and it doesn't want to go. Jeff T says rice is not keto, right? That's not. It's not keto. Again, though, if you're going to cook rice, I want you to have the easy way. That's why I spent so much time on cauliflower rice. So we cook those two. Do not boil cauliflower rice. You send against cauliflower if you do that. And you've you've made the pretty girl ugly. Yeah, don't don't do that. There's no reason to. You're not cheating. All right. Um, let's move on from there, because, again, I want to give you a bunch here at the end. How about I talked about the indirect grilling. Put all those 45, 46, whatever it was, chicken wings. I put the center of my grill. Turn my sides up on high 500 degrees in there. Those wings came out banging. I know what you're thinking, but Jack, think of all the chicken fat and spuge that just dripped down into your grill. And when you light those center burners, inferno. Nope. Nope. Uh, you size this proportionally to your grill and what you're cooking. But my, again, I have a six burner Weber. It's huge. Huge. And so I got a pretty big center. It's about half of a standard size grill for my center. Two of the throwaway, the smaller size aluminum throwaway baking pans, like you use at Thanksgiving for your, you know, uh, your, your green bean casserole and shit like that. You get two of those. Take the burner distributors out so that it'll go down lower. So you're sitting right on the burners. Put them under the grill. Two of them fit just about perfect for me. I have to smash one a little bit. Put the grill back over them. Put your food over that. All your drippings go into those throwaway aluminum pans. When there's enough in there that it's an issue, throw them away, get some new ones. They're less than a buck a piece. You never have all that goo in your grill then. Now, when you're cooking over open flame, your drip downs flare up as it happens. You move it around. You don't get a, but if you cook, you know, anything indirect long that has a good fat content, you're just going to have an incredible, you know, incineration event when you eventually turn those burners on. So that is a big time saver. And it's also a life extender for your burner units in your grill, which can be quite expensive. Uh, next, if you're going to put avocado on a sandwich, a wrap, anything that you're going to pick up and eat, including like I like avocado on a burger, but Jack, you can't have a bun. Well, I will eat burgers, no bun, on a plate. I will eat burgers in a lettuce wrap. I will eat burgers on a chaffle. If you don't know what a chaffle is, I'm not going to get into it today. Just search it. For, there's millions of them being made on YouTube all the time. All the keto people are into them. C-H-A-F-F-E-L, like waffle with a C, chaffle. Um, anyway, um, so I will sometimes have something that I'm picking up and eating. And I am not a saint when it comes to keto. Every once in a while, like, I'm going to have a good freaking burger with a brioche bun. This is like once every two or three months, but I'll, I'll have cheat day. I love avocado on them. Love them on a sandwich, anything like that. You know what happens? 
You know what happens. It's so oily and slippery, you bite it and the avocado flays out. Why? Why? There's not that much difference in, in, in texture. Mash the avocado into a spread. Like guac. You don't have to turn it into guacamole. You don't have to put, you know, onions and peppers and, and cilantro in it. Just mash it and put it on whatever you're eating, and it won't slide out and escape from you. Salad, I'll leave it in chunks and all. But mash just works so much better. Um, and then last, sticking with avocado for a minute. It's really popular on Thanksgiving to do this. Not Thanksgiving. Uh, it's, I like it's Thanksgiving. Probably because I'm talking about food, and it's the food holiday. Uh, St. Patrick's Day. Make deviled eggs. However you make deviled eggs and just replace your mayo with a mashed avocado or two, depending on how many you're making. And you just mix your yolk. And a lot of times people use like I use relish, like a sour gherkin uh, pickle relish in mine and a little bit of paprika. But instead of using mayo, mash up your avocado and then mix that into your uh, egg, your egg yolks. And then you put them back into the whites of the hard boiled eggs. So that's my last one for you today. That that is. Oh, it's so good. It's so freaking delicious. And, you know, avocado, I'll put avocado on anything. I mean, just about anything. I love avocado. And, again, a little shopping hack. Costco, in the refrigerator section, they'll have two different options most of the time. One is a true guacamole, and it has, you know, some jalapeno and some other stuff in it. I'd rather do that myself. They have one that's pretty much just a plain mashed avocado. They come in a perfect little single-size serving. You can freeze it. It will not change the flavor, the character, anything about it. Get a couple boxes of them, throw them in your freezer, take them out as you need them. Just take two or three out at a time, however many you're going to use over the next few days. When you're out of it, get some more out. You know, just do it in advance because it does need to uh, to thaw out. Let's start taking some of your Q&A here. Um, Ecomouse says, oh, by the way, since it's Ecomouse, if you are watching this and you haven't hit that like button, Ecomouse will flail you, man. You need to do it. She's big on it. You got to hit the like. And if you're subscribed and you've never hit the little bell, hit the bell and you'll get announcements when I'm doing live streams. Ecomouse says, Jack, did you see the article showing the fake meat produced 25 times more CO2 than moo cows produced? Source, interesting engineering. I did not see that, but it does not surprise me. You just have to think about how much CO2 it takes to make a beyond belief burger, beyond impossible burger, whatever. It's, it, it's gross. It's gross. But when you think about, okay, so you're going to use beets, you're going to use soy. There's like 30 freaking different things that go in there. And a bunch of it's long, multi-syllable crap that's terrible for you. But a lot of it is grown in fields. Well, now you have to transport, they use beets, red beets, because it makes it look red. You have to transport all these diff sparging ingredients that are grown in different places all to one place. Then you have to do all this energy to make it look like it's meat, even though it's crap. It's absolute crap. Then you have to package it and reship it where you take a cow, you kill the cow, you cut the cow up, you sell the cow. So, of course, and then if you look at the carbon footprint of all industries, the highest footprint for carbon is, is honestly agriculture. And I'm not talking about ranching. I'm talking about farming, true farming, plowing fields, and all the energy that goes into the production of the fertilizer, the pesticides, environmental disasters on their own. But if you're worried about CO2, then beyond burger is not what you want to be eat, eating. It's, it's beyond all reason that anybody would eat that crap. Uh, Jeff T., Jack, what is your chicken feed, and is it pellets or grains? Thank you. 
I buy my chicken feed, even though it's not about cooking. Um, I buy my chicken feed from a company called Tony Seed and Feed that's here local. With prices going up, I pay less for my feed than Purina down at the feed store at the corner. The only problem is we have to go 90 miles to get it. So we try to get, uh, you know, like a ton of it at a time. And uh, it is primarily made up of uh, peanut meal and sorghum that gets sort of corn and soy. And that's more important to me and my customers than organic. So it's not all organic. It's mostly organic. I think some of the ingredients are more conventional. I think the sorghum is conventional sorghum, which is not a highly sprayed crop. So we've made a decision to go there. We're paying about 12 bucks a bag for a 50 pound bag. And we use pellets. I use pellets because when we used crumbles, there was a lot more waste. The birds would leave a lot more waste behind. Uh, now I don't really care because I feed all my uh, crumble waste, all my little dust waste every day. I dump it into the bucket that I'm going to go get more feed for the birds in. I take that bucket into my worm farm. I feed it to my worms. Then I go fill the bucket up and bring it back out to the birds. Also, a little hack here on feeding birds. I do about four scoops of pellets every day for my birds, and I mix in two scoops of black oil sunflower. It's a great thing for the birds from a nutrition standpoint. It's very affordable. It's available everywhere. Black oil sunflower is another one of those crops. It's just not sprayed really hardly at all because it doesn't really have a pest issue. And farmers don't like to use inputs they don't have to pay for. So it's generally uh, a crop that's grown in between other crops as part of a rotation plant or something like that. Um, and so they just seed it. They harvest it. So you can buy bird seed, basically. 40-pound bags at Tractor Supply. I put two scoops of that in with the birds, but not just because it's good for the birds. We put Lucy and Charlie and Belle all on all meat diets and we're restricting their intake, getting them to weight. And Lucy was making very little progress. Charlie lost 10 pounds in like three months when we did this. And he was a hundred pound dog or 110 pound dog. So he went down to like 96 and Lucy just wasn't losing weight. She was in better shape, but she wasn't really losing the weight. And I caught her. She was eating the duck's food because it's peanut butter. It's peanut meal and sorghum. It's dog's food, too. So when I started mixing the sunflower in, she can't just gorge on it now. So that's a little extra tip today. Um, Harley says, if you can go to a restaurant store for certain things, you can get bulk food for even less than Costco. Yes. And like we have, I think it's Restaurant Depot or something here. And a lot of times you have to be a restaurant or in the food service industry to get allowed into them. You have to get set up with an account and then you can go anytime you want. You only have to do it once. It's kind of like buying a membership at Costco or Sam's club. But if you run a little farm business, you can use your LLC for your farm business. And most of them will let you right in. Oh, I, you know, I buy my packaging and stuff like that here. Cause it's not like they approve you for specific things. They just like, yeah, you're a legitimate, you know, food supply industry. And so once they do that, then you can go in and you can get, you know, chicken thighs, for well under a dollar a pound and stuff like that. Just just a little add-on there. Learned that from uh, my buddy Michael quite a long time ago. Ha, uh, Hoskus, H-O-S, Hoskus 14 says, will that boil trick work with ghost and reaper peppers? I imagine it will, as far as like boiling the pepper before you use it to drag down the heat. The more you have of heat, the less the effect will be. But I guarantee you, if you took 
like a ghost pepper or a reaper pepper or a habanero or something like that, seeded it and removed most of the pith and boiled it for a minute or two, I don't know how much less hot it will be, but I knew, I do know that it will be less hot and you'll have to experiment with that. Uh, God bless you as you do. When you find out you're I'm wrong. I, I, you know, I don't know. I have the only thing I've done it with is jalapenos and serranos and a good serrano is right around double the strength of a jalapeno. And you can take serranos in a minute. They're just like a jalapeno. They come down to nothing. So where does that, where does that end? I don't know if anybody's done it. You can let me know, but I haven't actually met a lot of people that know the, uh, the Dowson hot water trick. Cause it's, it works really, really well. Uh, Richard said, is the shirt from SOE tactical? Yes, it is. And for those that can't see the shirt, I'll read. It looks like a Tylenol shirt and it says extra strength tyranny or Americans. Right. And uh, this is one of the latest shirts that John sent me. I really dig it. I'm probably going to wear this when I present down in Bastrop on the weekend, either this or the other one that he recently got me. But yeah, most of the time when you tune, tune into a live feed and you see me on a video, not always, but most of the time I'm either wearing a shirt from John because he sends me almost one a week now or I'm wearing one of my own from TSP Swag. Remember, we have great gear at tspswag.com. We have some new stuff coming. We're going to be having something coming out soon, I hope, uh, for the Grow Noster initiative anyway. Uh, moving on, Eddie says, yep, frozen pork roast on Sunday in sous vide for two hours, 145 degrees, then two minutes on the grill. Yeah, you, it doesn't have to be steaks at all. You can do roasts. You can, you can do anything. By the way, I didn't put this in today as a hack. If you have something frozen, I know I've talked about this before, but I'll go ahead and throw it in today. If you have something frozen and you need to defrost it quickly, sous vide. You you can put it on the lowest setting for temperature. Just circulate the water. Honestly, if you get like a little nano aquarium pump for like 10 bucks off Amazon and you stick it on the side of a, a pot of water or something like that where it'll blow out sideways and circulate the water, it will defrost stuff like 100 times faster than setting it out on a counter or in a refrigerator. The movement of the water pulls the heat off, and it will be much faster. You do want it in a bag that's totally sealed, though, so you don't waterlog your meat, because waterlog meat is bad stuff. Uh, Art by Lee Murphy says, there's a rice made of hearts of palm, not ideal and expensive, tends to be slimy, not to mention the environmental cost. I, I don't think that heart of palm is that evil of a thing in of itself. When I heard about heart of palm, I was intrigued. They make noodle and rice out of it. It's like zero carb. It's like zero calorie. Um, and most things like that, you can flavor. It was just like you bought it, you heated it up, and it seemed like it shrank in half. It was really expensive, and it wasn't that good. Uh, my go-to for that, you know, what a noodle would do, what rice would do is the cauliflower rice. That's what's worked the best for me. K-Bong says, pesto, is there a good replacement for oil? Okay, um, I'm not really sure why you want to replace oil. So when we make pesto, we generally will use basil, pine nuts, Parmesan cheese, and quality olive oil. So I don't know if maybe K-Bonk has an allergy to olives or an aversion to olives or something like that. But you, you, as far as I know, you need something in there to act as a fat and... I would assume that coconut oil or avocado oil would work. I've never made it with either. Avocado oil is really neutral, so it would probably be just fine. Coconut oil, 
I don't care what anybody says. It has a coconut flavor. And so I would think coconut flavor in my pesto is not something that I would want. I don't really know how to tell you how to do a substitute for oil and make a pesto. But there would be nothing harmful in toasting some pine nuts, fine chopping some basil, and putting pine nuts in pine nuts and basil on a thing. But it wouldn't be a pesto. Anybody has and, and K-Bonk, if you want to add to your question, I'll come back around one time on the other side. Uh, Dennis says, any suggestions on solar ovens? Lots of sun here in the desert. Um, I will, if I don't forget, because I can't think off the top of my head of the sun oven I used to own, but it's the big box-shaped one. I gave, honestly gave mine to somebody in a barter deal. I, I found myself barely using it. It certainly worked good, um, but that would be the one that I would recommend. But I'm not big on sun ovens. I, I, I used it. It worked. It was what it was. I would make things like pork roast and all in it. And I don't know, since I discovered sous vide, it's such an energy efficient means of cooking, like something that I want to do long term and really get super tender. And I don't want to like put it in a Dutch oven in the oven or something like that. Or I don't want to manage it on the grill real long term or something. I, 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 I tend to just use sous vide for that. So uh, since I wasn't using it, I trade it. But uh, I'll, I'll try to remember to get that into the show notes for you on the audio side on that. There's a link in the show notes uh, for the video notes below that will go over to the audio. If you're watching the video and that will be available in about an hour after we finish this live stream. So if you're watching it in the future, it's probably already there. Hog says, can you have onion on keto? Yes. You need to count the carbs. You need to count the carbs. And onion and garlic both are fairly high in carbs, but the quantity you use. And, and I'm also kind of a believer that we can't get too anal about any of this stuff. Like, so onion and garlic, unless I'm using a massive amount of it, I don't even worry about it anymore. It's just a flavoring. And, uh, you know, if you're sitting down eating a pile of onions, like onions actually have quite a bit of sugar in them. But you know, dicing up an onion and using it in a dish that makes eight servings. I, I'm just not that worried about it, especially two meal a day, barely drinking alcohol, mostly carnivore, you know, and, and I'm like ketovore, I guess. Like I do eat some vegetables and all, but there are days that I'm there's there's times I go two or three days in a row, nothing but meat. If there's garlic or onions and all, it's like because it was in the pan that the that the steak was cooked in. So you you can eat anything on keto. It's the quantity and how much at one time and what your total carb limit is. And again, the 20 carb number is generally a number used by people counting net carbs. 50 carbs total, as long as they're not, as long as they're split between two or three meals. Many people, all their numbers come into alignment. They lose all the weight, maybe not as quick, whatever, but they're fine with it. Ken Berry said at our last workshop, there are people, if they cut their carbohydrates under 100 total, Everything comes into alignment. It doesn't work for everybody. People like Ken and I were big, uh, large framed, you know, he's Scotch Irish. I think I'm freaking Ukrainian. Like we look at a carb and we start gaining weight. So everybody has their own thresholds. I encourage you to find it, but you will be shocked. So many people are shocked. If you start tracking your carbohydrates and you're not on a carbohydrate restricted diet at all, and you just eat like normal. A lot of people are eating 300, 500, 600 carbohydrates a day. Uh, we had a family member who started doing this. 
And she called my wife and said, oh, my God, I tracked my cars for a week like you told me to. I, I didn't change anything. I just tracked them using a keto app. And I'm eating, on average, four to 500 carbs a, a day. And that's all sugar, guys. I don't care what anybody in the mainstream tells you. It's all sugar. Uh, Eddie Carter says, growing freezer bags of all scraps for veggie roughing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't do that as much as I used to because – I do a whole lot of feeding ducks and feeding worms now. Uh, so a lot of that goes to compost, but you know, bottoms of celery or whatever, but I don't do that either because I pull celery off and I take the heart and I plant it in an aquaponics system and make more celery or plant it in the garden and make more celery. Um, but yeah, if you have veggie scraps that would make good veg broth, whether you're going to do it with bones and make a, a bone broth that has a veg or you're going to make a vegetable broth or whatever, just save it and, and toss it in a pot and, and make your uh, stuff. Um, art by Lee Murphy says today, I started setting up my new bow fishing rig. Now I get to learn about all to better prepare trash fish, mullet, gar, tilapia, etc. future episode topic. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a few of those things. Mullet. I have never successfully cooked a mullet in a way that I would want to eat it other than one way smoked. You got a lot of bone to pick through with mullet and stuff like that, but smoked mullet's pretty good. I have no, everything else I've ever tried with, I haven't liked. Gar is actually a delicious fish. It's just a pain in the ass to butcher. But gar is fundamentally delicious. Tilapia, tilapia tastes like whatever you cook it with. Like my favorite, I'll give you a bonus. Fair way to do tilapia is I take the fillets, scaled skin on. Three or four cuts just through the skin on the skin side. And then I'll make a, um, a base. Now, if you use it without reducing it to a thinner thing, it will stick like a paste and it will burn. But gochijan is the Korean fermented chili paste. So take like some gochijan and some sake or some white wine, or if you don't want to use wine, use chicken stock and make it thin so it'll paint. Salt and pepper a tilapia filet, good on both sides. Then paint one side with the gochijan stuff, let it dry, flip it, paint the other side, do it twice each side and grill that. And then tell me tilapia doesn't have any flavor. And that anything you can do to put flavor into it will work. Uh, let's go back over here and see if I had any follow-up from K-Bonk um, or any other questions. I'm just looking for all caps. Okay. Jeff T said, have you tried pig wings? I don't know what pig wings are. So obviously I haven't tried them. Uh, I, I smell some sort of pork rind thing going on there. Do you want to tell me what those are, Jeff? Uh, I'd like to know before we wrap up. Dennis says, I'm off grid out here. Okay. I don't know why that's in all caps then because that's not a question. And I don't see any more questions. I think we've wrapped up all the questions. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed this one. I do, again, I get some shit from people sometimes. Like, this is a prepper topic. Do you store food? Yeah. Do you know what to do with it? No. Then, yeah, I guess it is for you. Do you do you have more money than you know what to do with? No. Then I guess this is for you. Do you like good food? Yeah. Then I guess this is for you. This is, again, Lifestyle Design 101. I really encourage you, especially homeschoolers, make this part of your curriculum. You know, my my wife tomorrow has plans to do something with the kids. You know, Burger King makes chicken fries. I'm sure they're, they suck. But kids like stuff like that. It's a keto chicken fry using canned chicken, egg, I think a little bit of cheese, and pork rinds. And basically you mix it all together and you form them into little sticks and you put them in the oven and you bake them. Will they be good? 
I don't know. That's my final thing. There's so much that I make that's so delicious. The first time I made it, it can't, it like, oh, I know the flavor profiles here. It just, it's wet or it's goopy or like, and I had to play with it to figure out how to do it right. There's stuff that I just threw together and it was fantastic right from the get-go. And there's stuff that I tried and I went, well, I'm never doing that again. You are not joining the Marine Corps, right? You're not joining the Army and the Marine Corps put together. You are not enlisting in a service for the rest of your life because you take some shit, throw it together, and try it. If it sucks, have, like if it's the first time you made it and you're iffy on, have a plan, what I'm going to eat if this doesn't work, yeah, and try it. And if it's almost there, play with it. And you'll develop your only stuff. Oh, okay. Dennis says, sorry. He's saying he was off grid because um, that's why he wants a solar oven. He's off grid. I would really encourage you to get a good um, like propane outdoor stove or something then. and bring in, if you can get, I, I know where you're at now and it might not be as easy, but if you can get a propane delivery truck, put in a 500 gallon pig. And uh, also like where you're at, there's mesquite trees everywhere. And if you chop up a bunch of that and keep it as a fuel wood, it cooks so freaking delicious. Anything that's good cooked over a grill is better cooked over mesquite. I don't know. I don't know for high temperature grilling if there is a higher value thing than mesquite for grilling compared to charcoal, compared to hickory, oak, gas, hickory. I don't care. Apple, all the good cooking woods. I don't care. Pecan, mesquite, it burns so hot. You get such a good sear. When you light mesquite chunks, I start to salivate before any food goes on it. It's that good. So I would also encourage you to build up a stockpile of mesquite for your cooking as well there. But I will try to remember for you, Dennis, to get that uh, solar oven into uh, the show notes. I'll also tell you, I've had the guy from that company on air. And if you Google, if you go to my site, the survivalpodcast.com and put in solar oven, not only will you find the company that I'm talking about, you'll get a whole show on solar oven cooking. Uh, again, I don't do a lot of it. So I brought somebody on that actually owns the company that makes the solar oven. So I'll throw that to you as well. Real quick, before we go, uh, I mentioned today that, um, like for making the garlic paste, the ginger paste, garlic onion paste, all that stuff, I use a mini food processor. And our item of the day today is a four-in-one immersion blender. Now, this is actually a new model because the one I originally was recommending, I've had it for so long they don't make it anymore. It, it's about six, seven years old now. This one has great reviews. It's got almost 3,000 reviews, 4.5 stars. Even though some people game the review system, when you get to that number, you're probably not gaming it. It works a lot like the one I have. It's an immersion blender, plus it has some other doodads, and it has the mini food processor. This is why I recommend one of, and if you don't buy this one, I recommend a four-in-one immersion blender. The highest quality one that's out there is made by Braun, but it's about 80 bucks. Uh, this one here is $29.99. Here I am with it on Amazon. Um what are you looking for? If you're, if you're going to use it like five times a week, I might buy the brawn, but if you're going to use it like a normal person, then probably this is, this is the one that you would need. 
30 bucks and it will last again. Mine's lasted like six, seven years. The little whisk thing and all the stuff that comes with it, eh, the immersion blender and the mini food processor. You can buy an immersion blender and a mini food processor, but you only need one motor. So by buying this, you get the mini food processor and the immersion blender. I like the immersion blender for soups like squash soups and stuff like that, eggplant soups, because what we used to do is we would take the stuff out of the pot when it was ready to be blended Put it in a Vitamix, blend it, and dump it back in. And you had to use two pots if you're making a big pot because you couldn't get it all in at once. Scalding hot soup being transferred, it's kind of horrifying. So I wanted immersion blender. I don't like unitaskers. You guys know me. I like this function stack. So um, found this guy, and I realized that I got the mini food processor. And I realized how many times I'm like, I should get the food processor out for this. And then I don't want to get this giant, like, 14-cup food processor out, right? And so I'm like, I could use that. And I was like, I was going to get a mini food. So I got this and get both. And this is what I used to do, my garlic paste, my little, you know, if I'm going to make a little bit of pico for, like, we're doing uh, tacos without tortillas uh, for dinner. I'll make some, uh, some pico, tomatoes, onions, jalapeno, cilantro. I use this. Why get that giant thing out to make, you know, a, a, a couple cups of something? So I really recommend this, and I really recommend that you learn more uh, about making your own paste and stuff like that. And it is one of the easy button ways to add flavor to things like wings and stuff like that. Make up a garlic onion or garlic ginger or, you know, um, green onion and ginger or any kind of paste like that. Just add some water, get the consistency you want, massage it, let it sit on your meat. It's fantastic. And remember, you can always support this show and the work that we do. By doing your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Go there. Even if you don't buy something I recommend, you can help me just start there. Use the links there. You'll help us out. And if it is reviewed there, I own it. I bought it. I spent my money on it. I would buy it again, or I would not recommend that you spend your money on it. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up today. I really appreciate you guys hanging out with me in the live stream. If you want to catch a live stream, tspclive.com will show you the next coming live stream unless it shows the one that already happened. That means I haven't updated it. Generally, I update it first thing in the morning each day. So we'll have that day's live stream for you. Uh, or get on Telegram or follow me on any of my social media, Twitter, MeWe, uh, all of that stuff, but especially Noster. You follow me there every morning once I set up the stream. I announce the title, what it's about, and how you can pitch in and, and be part of it definitely come check out a live stream it's a totally different experience again thanks to everybody i'll catch you tomorrow with another episode wednesday we do have an interview rewind thursday expert council on friday so even though i'm gone for a few days this week i'm pre-doing shows you're only getting one rewind and guys i'm not going to tell you what it is today the rewind that i have for you this time is one of the most important shows i ever did it's highly underrated how important it is, especially people that don't have kids because you know people that do or someday you might. And you really need to listen to this one. What is it about? You'll find out Thursday when I release it. But don't skip the rewind this week. Catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. Thanks for being with me. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never 